Welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. Uh, I didn't say g'day earlier, so welcome. If you're visiting, great to have you here with us. Um, We're about to start a new series uh, at our church. We love hearing from God's Word. We love having God's Word preached as well, and and he's going to be kicking off that series. The whole idea of this series is calling Living a Life of Resolve. I don't know about you, uh, during this week, there was a whole debacle about a movie that came out on Valentine's Day called Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm hoping no one's gone and seen it from my church. If you have, please come and talk to us. We'd love to have a chat with you. <coughs> but what do you do when your uh, friends say, hey, why don't you come and watch this movie with us? Or what do you do when, uh, even if it's a Christian friend who's like, well, I'm going to go and check it out anyway and see what it's all about. What do you do? How do you live in this world without compromising in your faith? Uh, And so this season, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at two lives, Joseph and Daniel. Uh, These guys were actually living in in many ways in a world where uh, they were forced to live contrary to uh, um, their beliefs and uh, who they worship, God in particular. But they never compromised. They live for God in that season. So we're going to be exploring that. So there's going to be some questions that you have in your everyday life. It's actually going to be applicable for you because God's word is alive even today in 2015. I'm going to pray for Andy and for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We want to thank you for who you are. We pray for Andy as he um, preaches your word, particularly looking in the life of Joseph. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower him uh, and Jesus that you would be made much of. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Shibu. Uh, this is a daunting task. Uh, first of all, two things, tackling uh, three sermons in a row. I've never done that before, so uh, if you're sick of me by week after next, I understand. Um, and uh, we're also going to tackle uh, three chapters in Genesis in one, uh, in one morning. That's also a daunting task. So I'm going to throw straight into it. First of all, the story of Joseph is not in the book of Joseph. It's in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you're looking for Je- in your index of books, you won't find it. It's not in Joseph. Genesis is where we are, which is the first book in the Bible. And Genesis is a book of beginnings, the beginning of creation, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of sin and death, the beginning of God's chosen people, the beginning of God's covenant, his promises to his people, the beginning of God's ultimate rescue plan that we see play out right through the ages and is even still in play today. And all through the book of Genesis, we get this re-emerging theme again and again. God is sovereign. God is in control. Things are happening because God is making them happen. God has a plan. It's playing out. Watch it happen. Watch the story unfold. And we see that if God has made a promise, he can't and he won't go back on it. It's not in his nature to do that. And so in that sense, Genesis is also the book of the beginning of our understanding of God. It's our introduction to God and his character. And that's super important because our understanding of God determines how we interact with God. Let me give you an illustration of that truth. You're standing by your 1980 Corolla. You're very proud of it, but you wouldn't mind a different car. And someone walks along the footpath and says, hey, I like that car. I'd like to buy it from you. Great, you say. How much will you give me? I'll give you $100,000. Wow, that's a lot. I accept. Good, he says. 
would you mind if I just take the car down the road to the ATM so that I can withdraw the cash? Now you're thinking a little differently. And you say, but it's okay, he says, I've got the money and all I need is the, a lend of the car to go to the ATM. Why do you say no? What makes you say no? I'll tell you what makes you say no. You don't know this person. You don't know whether you can trust him because you have no idea who this is and this is your very first interaction with him. Guys, if we can get to know God and have multiple interactions with him, we can learn to trust him because we can learn to know him. My hope is that through this series, through these interactions that we have and this this look that we're going to have uh, at Joseph's life, that we can learn a bit more about God as a person. So, not so that we can know Joseph and be able to recite all the things that happened to him, but so that we can learn to trust God, the God who was at work through Joseph's life. We pick up Joseph's life uh, in, the, in chapter 7 of Genesis. But before that, there's been a whole series of things that has happened uh, in, in God's plan, ultimately bringing God's people to this point. First of all, God created the world, and then he created Adam and Eve. And then some things went a bit sour. God was not happy with the way people were behaving, and he effectively started again. He wiped out everyone except Noah and his family. Noah and his family repopulated uh, that part of the world and God then called Abraham. He made a unique arrangement with Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you and I want you to be mine. And Abraham obeyed. Abraham didn't have any kids until God gave him Isaac. Isaac was a very special son. Isaac, we see God at work when he... uh, when God introduced him to Rebecca, uh, a, uh, a marriage that came about through unusual circumstances. Isaac and Rebecca have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau uh, get along and then don't get along. And Jacob uh, tricks Esau uh, into getting his birthright. Esau gets pretty angry about that and Jacob runs. Jacob goes and lives with his uncle Laban He works there for a long time. Uh, Ironically enough, Jacob gets tricked. Uh, He is tricked into marrying uh, Rachel instead of Leah. Uh, Jacob, or is it the other way around? (laughs) Leah instead of Rachel. Sorry about that. Uh, And so he then ultimately works another seven years and he uh, marries Rachel. He thinks she's worth it, and she probably was. Uh, They have kids. And Jacob decides it's time to leave his uncle Laban and he leaves with a whole lot more than he went with and he comes home uh, with a whole lot of stuff and he meets up with Esau, trembling with fear that Esau is going to venge justice upon him but instead they make up uh, and Jacob settles down in Canaan. Jacob has lots of sons, he has 12 sons Uh, but two of them are very special to him, the two sons that he uh, had with Rachel, and Joseph is the older of those two, and it's Joseph who is the shiny golden boy. He gets the special treatment. And so we pick up with Joseph. Now, guys, I can't read to you every verse of three chapters of Genesis, and I won't be able to read you every verse 
of every chapter that we're going to look at. So please can I encourage you, watch this, ready? Hang on. Read it. (laughs) Don't rely on me for the story. Right? I'll tell you what I've read and I'll tell you what I think and I'll tell you what I think God is saying to me and to us, but read it. It's like a novel, but really short. It's great for people who don't like reading books. <laughs> You're only reading a few chapters. It's a really great read. The second thing I want to tell you is that this is actually not about Joseph. This is not a character study of Joseph. This is about God, the person who made Joseph interacted with Joseph, guided Joseph, protected Joseph, is actually about God, not about Joseph. So please, don't come away saying, hmm, I need to be more like Joseph. That's not the point of this series. The point of this series is, what has God done? What can he do? Will I trust him? Trust the same God that Joseph trusted. That's the thrust of this. Now, I'm going to read some verses, and I'm going to pick it up in chapter 37. But before you flick to your Bible and try to read along, I've skipped a whole lot. My verses just go, touching over the important bits, or the bits that I want to draw out. So listen as I read, rather than try to read along. Jacob said to Joseph, "'Go and see if all is well with your brothers.'" And with the flocks, and bring back word to me. This is after already Joseph has told his dad and his brothers his dreams, and they're all a bit suspicious of Joseph and his dreams. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him, and then. We'll see what comes of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty. Thank goodness. Or thank God. And there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Then they got Joseph's robes and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in blood and they took the ornate robe back to his father and said, we found this, examine it, see whether it's Joseph's robe. Jacob recognized it and he said, it is Joseph's, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son many days. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. I'm going to skip over chapter 39, which is at the same time, but it's not about Joseph. And I'm going to pick up chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built. We'd say 
he's built. And handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. In other words, she had eyes for Joseph. Come to bed with me, she said to him, but he refused. And though she spoke to Joseph every day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought here to make, so has, has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When his master heard the story of his wife saying, this is how your slave has treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, showing him kindness and granting him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who were held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. He basically goes back to being in charge of everything again, just in a different place. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials and he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison that Joseph was confined. Each of these two men, the cupbearer and the baker, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. And when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. And so he said to them, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but no one is here to interpret them. Then Joseph said to him, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So they do, they tell him the dreams. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off here from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being in a prison. This is what your dream means, he said to the baker. The three baskets are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impaled your body on a pole. And the birds will eat away your flesh. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When I looked over these chapters, and I was uh, wondering what it is to lift out and to talk about, Obviously, there's a heap of stuff there. But first of all, one of the things that became apparent to me is the topic of envy. And it becomes apparent to me that as Joseph lived his life, his life of resolve was one that was content and not envious. His conduct stands in stark contrast to the conduct of some of the others. Joseph did not resent other people for what happened to him. 
his brothers and Mrs. Potiphar, on the other hand, were full of envy. We live in a kind of world where envy is used as a motivator. We're encouraged to look at what other people have and pursue it. Try to catch up. Do you want to have the house that they have? The kind of job that he has? The kind of shoes that she has? The car, the boat, the holiday, the house, the whatever? So, uh, Solomon in, uh, in Ecclesiastes says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbour and this is also vanity. Vanity. It was a striving after, after the wind. And I want to just distinguish envy from jealousy. Jealousy uh, is wanting something that should be yours. God says he's a jealous God. Is God envious of us? No, God is jealous because we belong to him. We should be his and he's envious. Sorry, he's jealous. He's jealous of the worship of his people. Read that in the Old Testament when he lays down the Ten Commandments. He says, don't worship anything or anyone else. I'm jealous for that worship. It's mine. It should be mine. Envy, on the other hand, is a feeling that is directed at people. Envy is more than just desire. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing that is aroused by someone else's possession, someone else's good fortune, someone else's qualities. And so it's not just, I want it, it's, I don't like that person because they have it. It's resentful. Envy doesn't just cause us to desire something, it causes us to hate someone. And envy eventually causes us to say, if I can't have what they have, then I don't want them to have it either. And it starts to motivate us to sabotage and to undermine. We see that playing out here in this story. And if I can't have what they have, then they won't have it either. If I have to be dissatisfied, they should be too. If I can't come up to their level, I'm going to drag them down to mine. That's what envy does. Proverbs says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It destroys us from the inside. And it was envy that causes Joseph's brothers to harm him so, to do such a terrible thing as to beat him up, sell him, and then pretend that he's dead. They saw how their dad favoured Joseph, and they wanted that kind of love from their dad, but they weren't getting it. They saw that Joseph's got this robe, this robe that designates him as management, not as labour. And they want that kind of confidence about their future. They want that kind of encouragement from their dad and they're not getting it. And then they hear Joseph say, I've had these dreams and here's what I think they mean and and I was this and you were that and you bowed down to me and... They want the kind of ambition for their future that Joseph has, but they don't have it. And since they can't have what Joseph has, the only way their envy is going to be satisfied is to deprive Joseph of those things that he has. So with their hatred, their resentment, drowning out his cries for help, they beat him up, they throw him in an empty well, and they sell him for silver. And they take him from being favourite son to goods on the shelf. 
Instead of confidence, now he's going to experience fear and anxiety and uncertainty, the same things that they're experiencing. It was also envy's, uh, envy that motivated Potiphar's wife to lash out at Joseph. She's pretending that she loves him. In fact, it's not love, it's lust. And when Joseph shows that his God and his integrity is more important to him than satisfying his sexual desires, she is envious. The uprightness of this guy. And since she can't have the thing that she wants, all of a sudden, Joseph can't have it either. Joseph's uprightness, I'm going to take it away from him. And all of a sudden, she hates Joseph and she tells lies about him. Ironically, she tells lies about the same thing that she was wanting. Oh, he came in to rape me. And she has him thrown in jail. And Joseph, and Joseph when, he's, when he's presented with this opportunity, he says, nah, how could I? How could I do such a thing against my boss and against my God? She's envious of Joseph. Envious can target many things. Sorry, envy can target many things. It can target someone's possessions, their looks, their apparently easy life, their ability to conquer huge tasks. We're good at this as Aussies, are we not? We look at people and we say, him and his big job, him and his fancy Land Cruiser. Whatever it is, I really like Land Cruisers. (laughs) If you've got one, I sort of struggle with envy there. But we bring down tall poppies. We're really good at this as Australians. The Bible tells us that envy is something to get rid of. It destroys us from the inside. It is opposite to the gospel. Guys, if your life was a garden, you wouldn't reserve a patch for weeds. Don't leave space in it for envy. Don't leave space in it for envy. It is opposite to the gospel. It is opposite of grace. It is the opposite of mercy. It is the opposite of forgiveness. It is the opposite of turning the other cheek. It is the opposite of going the extra mile. When we have envy, we don't just want stuff. We don't like people who have it. And we want to do something about it. It was envy that motivated the Pharisees to call for Jesus' blood. They wanted his authority. They wanted his influence. And since they couldn't have it, they were determined that he wouldn't have it either. It was envy that made them tell lies about him and have the justice system come down on him like a ton of bricks, even though he had done nothing wrong. Sounding familiar? Yep, it happened to Joseph. Do you want to know if you've got envy in your life? This has been a real challenge for me. Think about the last time you rolled your eyes when you heard someone telling you about something good that happened to them. You rolled your eyes and think, oh, for goodness sake, if I hear this one more time... That's the start of envy. Yep, it might be annoying that you keep getting reminded that someone had something good and you didn't, but watch out for that. That is the start of envy. So here's some questions that I thought might be useful for us as we, as we tackle this issue of envy. Who am I envious of? You've got different people in your life to me. Who am I envious of? 
Who do I resent because of their things or their achievements or their lifestyle or their whatever? What plans or decisions are you making right now? Life decisions, big or small. What plans or decisions are you making right now that you think maybe they're being motivated by envy? How can I learn to be content? What do I need to let go? And what do I mean by let go? Stop wanting it. Stop chasing it. Acknowledge, yep, I'd really like that, God, but I'm not going to chase it. And if it's right for me to have it, then you chase it for me. That's what I mean by letting go. What can I just put into God's hands in that way and say, God, I'm going to not do anything about this anymore. As much as I want that thing, as much as that person annoys me when they give me a lift in their nice car, their Land Cruiser. (laughs) The second thing that comes to the surface really obviously is this whole issue of Good people, bad things. And before you think that I'm going to philosophise why do bad things happen to good people, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to answer the question why because I don't know the answer to the question why. God knows the answer to that question. But I do know this: a life of resolve puts and leaves God in charge. A life of a life of resolve puts and leaves. God in charge. Have you ever been one of those people who says life's not fair or that's not fair? When I was growing up, one particular sibling in my family would say that more than others. But that's not fair. And everyone's got their own idea about what's fair. And I don't know about you, but I'm sure we couldn't even agree amongst ourselves in the room, uh, even if in a much smaller room, who should get to decide what's fair? Because if you got to decide what was fair, someone else would say, but that's not fair that he decides what's fair. It could go on for a long time. We all feel like there are things that are unfair. Circumstances, treatment of others, hardships that we suffer, being deprived of a benefit, being not rewarded for what we do, not recognised, getting something different to what we thought we deserved. And not much could be more unfair than what happened to Joseph. Yep, he could have been a little more discerning about who he told these dreams to. If I ever have a dream that says, you know, you'll all bow down to me, I don't think I will tell you about it. I'll just keep it to myself and I might have a quiet word with the elders. (laughs) And they might have a quiet word with me. (laughs) He might have been a little more sensible than to wear that jacket when he went out on his own to find his older and bigger brothers who were more numerous than he. You and I probably with the benefit of hindsight, said, Joseph, what are you thinking? You know, that jacket is like a red rag. But nothing that he did deserved what he got. He didn't deserve to be beaten up and sold. He didn't deserve to have lies told about him and sent to jail for resisting the very woman who wanted to sleep with him. He did everything right in that circumstance, yet he ended up being punished as if he had done everything wrong. Man, he should have got a medal. A 20-something-year-old, red-blooded man resisting a woman who is making multiple approaches to him, he deserves a medal, not jail. 
So the question that came to my mind is, well, these bad things are happening. Is God causing these bad things? Is God actually doing these bad things? Or, alternatively, is God stepping back and simply watching these bad things happen? Is God actively causing it? Or is God just stepping back and saying, hey, I created these people with free will. Or is there another option? Is there a middle ground? As I've read this and as I've thought about it and prayed about it and read some more, I think neither of those possibilities are true. God is not motivating. God is not stirring in Mrs. Potiphar's heart to lust after Joseph. He's not motivating the brothers to beat up on him and throw him into a well. That would be God stirring sinful thoughts in people and causing them to act out on their sinful impulses. The God of the Bible we know is not like that. God is holy. He doesn't even like looking at sin. He can't look at sin. So he won't be stirring up and causing it. And yet at the same time, it becomes apparent to us pretty quickly that God is not just standing back hands off and watching passively. I think there is an in-between. It's hard to describe, but I'm going to make a simple attempt. And here's, how I, here's why I say there is an in-between. Because it's, as, I, as I looked at the story of Joseph and as we study this, this course of events, it becomes pretty obvious that God is steering Joseph's life down a certain path. Think about these things. When Joseph went looking for his brothers, he got lost. And it just happened that he comes across a stranger who also happened to hear Joseph's brother say, oh, we're sick of this place, let's go to Dothan. And that stranger is able to tell Joseph where to find him. And it just happens that on the day that Joseph's brothers beat him up and throw him in the well, there's a caravan of traders coming past. And that caravan just happens to be headed for Egypt. And it just so happens that he's sold into the house of Potiphar, who's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And it just so happens that Potiphar puts him in charge and lets Joseph hone all his administration skills that he's going to need later on in life. And it just so happens that instead of beheading him like he should have for a man who tries to sleep with your wife, Potiphar says, I'm not wholly convinced about this story. And he puts him in jail instead of putting him to death. And it just so happens that he was in the royal jail, not just any jail. And it just so happens that he was had the cupbearer and the baker assigned to him. And it just so happens that he was selected by Pharaoh ultimately to govern the whole country. And it just so happens later in the story that he was on the scene when some brothers from Canaan come to buy grain in the middle of the famine. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. It's too much happenings to be chance. This is not a passive God. And so how do you explain it? Is God causing it? We don't think so. Is God just watching? No, we don't think that either. Here's my simple attempt at explaining it. I don't know if you've ever played chess against a computer. If you have, you're probably deflated a little like I am. When I play chess against a computer, the computer always wins always wins. It doesn't choose my moves, but it does sort of put me in positions where I have to make certain moves. 
And then I feel like it made me do that. And then I feel like it knew that I was going to do that. And then I feel like I've been set up and it's engineered this result. And it doesn't seem to matter what move I make. My moves always seem to serve the computer's strategy. It seems to weave my moves into its ultimately successful plan and before very long, checkmate. Now, I want to tell you, these simple analogies are not designed to stand on all fours. God is not trying to beat you at a game. When God wins in his ultimate plan, we don't lose, we win. When God wins, we win. And in the same way, I know that in my life I've made choices. Some of them have been poor. Things have happened to me that I didn't expect. And yet, God seems to be able to weave that in and turn it into his plan. Did God know those things were going to happen? Yeah. Did God make them happen? I don't know. I don't think so. But when compared to God, if you're trying to engineer a certain outcome, you're as good as a chess player playing computer chess against the computer. I asked my oldest daughter, Emily, she's six years old. Some of you know her. I asked her, Emily, what do you do when you're drawing? She loves to draw and paint and do little arty things. And she's, uh, she's keen to do those things. And I said, what do you do when, she make, when you make a mistake, Emily? She looked at me and says, I try to turn it into something nice. I think God does the same. He doesn't make the mistake, we do. He doesn't make the bad choices, we do, or others do. But can he use it? Can he redeem it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That theory, by the way, of turn your mistake into a feature has been inherited from her mum, who inherited from her grandpa, who's a very good painter, Ed Bentley. The other vain attempt I'll make at explaining this is Mr Squiggle. Now, for people who are my age and up, you'll know who Mr Squiggle is. He's a puppet who comes down in a rocket from the moon and he gets sent little cards from kids and they just draw random lines on paper and then they put it onto a blackboard. He says, hurry up, hurry up. (laughs) And the... And the puppet turns it into a picture. And then just when you think he's finished, he says, oh, no, I'm going to change my mind, change my mind. And he draws something else and he spins it around and it's another picture again. And it doesn't seem to matter what the squiggle is that people send to him, he can always turn it into something good. Always. He never fails. And so when we say life's not fair, things bad things are happening to me, can redeem those things, just like he did for Joseph. Just like he did for Joseph. Now, I also want to throw out a question. Do you even want life to be fair? Life's not fair. Well, yeah, it's right. It's true. You agree? Life's not fair. And we won't get into who gets to decide who's fair and what's fair. We won't have an election on that point. But I've got to say to you, if life was fair, we'd all be in serious trouble. If life was fair, we're all in big trouble. Because if life was fair, then I would suffer the just consequences for what I've done. If life was fair, I wouldn't get the experience. uh, I would not get the opportunity to uh, meet God. I wouldn't have God's love, which is undeserved. And undeserved is not fair. 
If life was fair, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you with an opportunity to read his word. If life was fair, you wouldn't have the kind of income you would uh, have. In fact, if life was fair, we would all be instantly zapped into hell, or at least, at a minimum, you would all lose your beautiful affluent lifestyles and would all be living on something between 2 and $5 a day. And someone in the crowd, after that zappy moment, would say, Hey, that's not fair. I just went from there to there. That didn't feel fair. You know, I don't think we actually mean fair. When we say, I just want fair, or I want life to be fair, I think what we actually mean is, I want life to be favourable. You agree with me? We actually want life to be favourable to us. If life was fair, the gospel would not even be true. If life was fair, the gospel would not even be true because the gospel goes beyond what's fair. The gospel says God chose to not treat us as our sins deserve. God chose to extend to us his grace when we didn't deserve it. The opportunity to be forgiven is not fair. I don't think we actually want fair. Praise God that life is not fair because praise God for the gospel. When we see Joseph tackling these questions of fairness in his life, we see the same thing proving true again. God is in ultimate control. God is redeeming those unfair things. Yeah, Joseph didn't deserve to be thrown into jail. Joseph didn't deserve to be beaten up by his brothers. Joseph didn't deserve to be forgotten by someone who he just gave reassurance about his very life. But God can redeem those unfair things. They happen because we live in an imperfect world, but they are redeemed by a perfect God who is absolutely in control of everything. And somehow God weaves them into his perfect plan. It doesn't matter what move other people or other things make. God has a plan and it will be fulfilled. And strangely enough, when those unfair things happen, we feel crushed and bent out of shape and completely destroyed and it's then at those moments that God shapes us like the clay. This is a great quote in Isaiah that says, hey, does the clay ever say to the potter, what do you think you're making? I've got no handles. Put handles on. Does the clay ever say that? No. And yet we are the clay. We are not the potter. Don't second-guess the potter. Don't second-guess the potter. On the whole, Joseph seems to be learning to trust God in every situation. In every situation, he, bit by bit, is learning that somehow God is in control of this. Somehow. He doesn't fully understand it. He's going through that same thing that we saw David. Remember when we did this, the uh, life of David last year and we saw David get anointed as king and then he's living on the run. He's like Robin Hood, living in caves with his merry men, somehow trying to run away from the king who wants his head. And David's like, "How did this does not feel like the path to the throne. What's going on? I'm sure Joseph was feeling the same thing. I had these dreams and this does not feel like the path to a position of power. This feels like the path to obscurity and anonymity and, you know, 
to rot in jail somewhere. But in both cases, God used those circumstances, those experiences to fulfil his ultimate plan. And Joseph's still human. He still tries to get himself out. What does he say to the cupbearer when he interprets his dream? He says, hey, God's going to get you out and you're alive. You're going to be back and reinstated. And while you're there, for goodness sake, mention me to Pharaoh. I don't deserve to be here. Joseph says, oh, this is my big break. This is my chance to get myself out of jail. God must have engineered this. Yep, God did engineer it. But it wasn't for that moment. And as if to remind Joseph that it'll be God and God's timing who gets Joseph out of jail, the cupbearer forgets. Three months, six months, then 12 months. I wonder if Joseph was marking these on the wall. 18 months, two years, until come next week. (laughs) In the meantime, can I ask you these questions? As I have asked myself these questions, where can we learn or where are are our opportunities to say, what can I learn? How is God shaping me instead of why am I going through this? Why me? Why not someone else? This is not fair. Where are your opportunities to ask, Lord, what is it that I need to learn here? What is it that you're shaping in or out of me? How can I be changed? Rather than saying, how can I possibly get out of this? God sent Joseph to Egypt. There is no doubt about that. Where is God sending you? Does it feel good? It might feel bad. It might feel terrible. But it may well be God sending you. Where is God sending you? Or who is God sending to you? God sent the cupbearer and the baker to Joseph. Who is God sending to you? How can you allow those things to mould you and shape you? What promises of God do you need to be reminded of? What ambitions or dreams do you need to just let go of? I'm sure Joseph never, ever forgot that dream about the things bowing, those stars and the moon and things bowing down. Those dreams that he has, I'm sure he never forgot them. But he had to let go of them. He had to leave them with God. And he had to stop stop trying to get to that place himself. I don't I don't know about you, I've never had a dream or a promise from God that I'm gonna be promoted and people are gonna be bowing down to me. But I do read promises from the Bible that God has made to me because he makes them to all of us. Not every promise in the Bible is for me. Thankfully. God promised Mary she's going to have a baby. That wasn't for me, that promise. (laughs) But some promises are for us all. And they're promises like this. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And when you feel like you're alone, you've got to remind yourself that's a promise of God. 
I might feel like I'm alone, but I'm not. I do not change. Sometimes God does things one way and then he does things another way another time. But God does not change. His methods might, but he does not. I'm still working on you, is a promise that God makes. I haven't stopped. I will always love you. I can't turn it off. I will supply what you need. I am working for your good. For your good. I am ultimately working for your good. I have one eternal life for you. That's a promise. God can't go back on those things. And so in the down times, when the bad things are happening and you think, I'm a good person, why is this bad things? Don't forget to hold on to God's promises. He is working for our good. He is with us. He does love us. He has not given up. I'm going to pray and then we're going to uh, hand over to the music team, I think. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you don't abandon us. Thank you that Amazingly, uh, you can take bad stuff and turn it into good. You can use people's mistakes, people's evil deeds, and you can work them into your ultimate plan. Lord, for those of us who are struggling, for those of us for whom life is hard, and and, and when we say, this is not fair, this is not right, it doesn't feel good, Lord, we know that you know those things and we know that you actually care about our hearts and you want us to become more like Jesus. Lord, help us to trust you in that. Help us not to try to fix or to orchestrate circumstances, uh, to wriggle out of things. Lord, help us to simply understand that you, not us, but you, are in ultimate control and that you know and that you actually care. God, help us to have a peace in our heart about those things, just as Joseph had to wrestle with those things and come to learn that it would be you and your timing that determined the ultimate outcome. We ask, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts in relation to those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.